welcome to another episode of Tea Chatter. Today I'm talking to Jan Heine. Jan is the editor of Bicycle Quarterly, a magazine for, quote, all cyclists interested in the culture, technology, and history of cycling, unquote. He's here today to talk about technology, specifically how comfort on the bike can translate into a faster ride and how to achieve that comfort. You're going to be surprised to learn that some of the ideas we hold sacred about what makes a bicycle fast really aren't true at all. I hope you enjoy this. Well, Jan, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate this a lot. Um, as you probably know from in my business, when I think about bicycles and comfort, I think about frame design and, and how well is the rider fitting on the machine because if you don't fit well, you're not comfortable. And I know that you're concerned about that too, but you're coming at a lot of this from a little bit of a different perspective. Things like well, suspension loss. You know, I think I think I agree with you on the frame. That's absolutely the first requirement, and um, I, I take that as a given almost. You know, because basically, once you have an experienced rider who has gone through two or three bikes, they usually have a bike that fits them quite well. And then we look at what else you can do to improve the bike. Or sometimes you have somebody who is not yet ready to buy the new bike and still wants to optimize what they have. Exactly. Because buying a new bike is a big investment. Exactly. I think one of the areas you concentrate on is tire pressure. And I have to tell you that for years and years, I've always looked at the sidewall of the tires, seen what the maximum inflation pressure was, bump, 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 pumped it up to that, and off I go. Just thinking to myself, well, I've completely reduced the rolling resistance to the minimum, so I must be enjoying a faster ride, or am I? <laughs> well, I used to do that too. <laughs> it's only been um, recently, well, basically with the research um, that we've done for Bicycle Quarterly, where we found that that's not quite necessarily the case, because um, we we did some tests of the rolling resistance on real roads where we had the rider coast down the hill and um, made sure that everything was always the same, no wind, same position, and so on. And it's easy to check that with statistics so you can make sure that you're actually not getting the rider lifting their nose a little higher rather than a faster tire or something. But what we found was that, sure, if your tire is almost flat, you get a much slower ride. But then you get to a point where the tire performance reaches a plateau mm -hmm. and you can pump more air into the tires and it doesn't get any faster. And in some cases, it even gets slower at a point. Now, why would a, a tire that's fully inflated be slower than a tire that's not fully inflated? What's going on? Well, when you on? look at bicycle history, they started out with wooden wheels and iron rims on them. Mm -hmm. And when you imagine a tire with infinite pressure, you're back to a wooden wheel with an iron rim on it, maybe with a thin layer of rubber so that it doesn't slip as much. That's a good analogy. And as you know, that works really, really well for railroads. Railroads use steel wheels on steel rails, and they have incredibly low rolling resistances. Right. You know, you have a locomotive with, you know, 3,000 horsepower can pull 100 cars, and each of those weighs twice as much as a semi-truck. Um, whereas, you know, semi-trucks would need something like 20 times the horsepower for that. Um, but the problem on real roads is that you get bumps, and the bumps even on smooth roads are quite significant. And so you lose a lot of energy from the vibration of the bike, and most of that energy actually is absorbed in the rider's body. And we feel it as discomfort, but what really is happening is that our fibers in the muscles, in our tissues, and so on, 
are rubbing against each other, and that creates a lot of friction, and it's amazing how much energy can be lost there. Interesting. It, how, how do you determine then? I mean, if I'm a person who says, well, I think I'll try this letting some of the air out of my tires routine, mm-hmm. how do I know when I've gone too far or too little? Because one of the things that you've talked about is that tires that are fully inflated feel fast. We may not be any faster, but it feels fast. Mm-hmm. So it, it, how do I know Yeah, that? well, the feeling fast, I, let me explain that real quick. Basically what happens is we notice the vibrations of our bike, and the higher the frequency of the vibrations get, the faster we feel, because the faster you go, the quicker you hit each of the little pebbles on the road in succession. So if we can somehow trick our body by making the frequency of the vibrations higher without going faster, the body will still feel like we're going faster. (laughs) And inflating the tires harder increases the frequency of the vibrations and therefore makes the bike feel faster. And it still tricks me, even though I know it's not true. Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. just as an experiment, inflated my tires from the normal 70 PSI to 100 PSI. And I was riding next to my friend and um, I said, you know, we're going faster than usual, aren't we? (laughs) He looked down at his pedometer and he laughed and said, nope. And then I remembered, oh, yes, I just had overinflated my tires. I hadn't even remembered that I had done that. You know, uh-huh. that was just one of those experiments. Anyway, um, so it it's basically a, a trick where where you have, you, you're creating an effect like going faster without going faster by just increasing the tire pressure. But back to your question about how do you know what the perfect tire pressure is? Well, Frank Berto, who used to do a lot of technical writing about bicycles, he experimented and he looked at a variety of tires and what he was trying to achieve was 15% tire drop, which means that if your tire, when you're not sitting on the bike, stands, say, 30 millimeter tall, and most tires are more or less round, so a 30 millimeter wide tire is also about 30 millimeters tall. Um, when you sit on the bike, it obviously will go down a bit, and the tire companies usually recommend about 15% tire drop. So on a 30 millimeter tire, you'd want the tire to be on to, to drop four and a half millimeters, right. so you're at 25 and a half millimeters afterward. Of course, it's terribly complicated to measure that, and fortunately for us, Frank Berto did that. He measured, I don't know, I have, he sent me all his data. It's like a whole folder full of stuff. He must have spent weeks. Um, but since he's an engineer, he loves doing that kind of stuff. So it was useful. And then he drew one graph, which basically averaged all his um, data points. Um, and um, that graph is was published in our magazine. It's also available at our website. It basically shows you for your weight, what is the pressure that gets you that 15% tire drop for a given tire width. So there's a graph for 23-millimeter tires, a graph for 25-millimeter tires, and you just go... Uh, you know, my weight is on the wheel, say 150 pounds, well, I, or or something like that. Right, you read right. off the pressure. You would include and yourself from our, and, yeah, and whatever and from, you're carrying. Exactly, and you know, ideally, you'd actually weigh how much of the weight is on the front wheel and how much on the rear wheel. Right, especially right. on a racing bike or a bike with a rear rack, you might have two thirds on the rear wheel, and so should ride a lot higher pressure there. Which, by the way, is not that difficult. You just put a bathroom scale under the bike and uh, put a brick that's the same height under the front wheel and sit on the bike while somebody holds you and reads off the the weight and then you turn the whole thing around and read it off the other wheel and you're done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
um, much easier than Bertolt's experiment of actually figuring out how much the bike dropped. And what we found was that the tire companies actually were right, that basically the 15% is the point where increasing the pressure doesn't gain much. So that means that at 15% tire drop, you're getting the optimum in comfort, and you're still getting close to the optimum in performance. All right. Are you typically within the recommended inflation pressure range even? When yeah. yeah. For okay. most tires, it depends. For most tires, it's for narrow tires, it's often at the very high end because most people don't inflate the narrow tires high enough um, because there's just so little air in there. So you need to pump them up really hard. Mm-hmm. For wide tires, it's usually at the low end. Like, for example, I weigh with my bike and everything about 180 pounds. And I ride about 70, 75 PSI in tires that are 30 millimeters, 32 millimeters wide. Mm-hmm. And the tires are rated to, I think, 95 or even 105 or something like that. So wow. it's it's definitely not, not the top end. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you may be thinking something interesting. A lot of people these days are just riding really narrow tires. I think the, the myth is that a wide tire is a slow, clunky tire. That's not true, is it? It depends. You know, <laughs> what we found in our tire testing is that the width of the tire um, doesn't really matter that much for its performance. What matters much more is the way it is made, how supple the um, casing is, mm-hmm. how much rubber there's on it. Um, and so a lot of wide tires are clunky slow tires because they're intended for hybrid bikes, for commuters and things like that. So, um, whereas a lot of racing tires are intended for racing, and so they have supple, thin casings, um, and therefore they are faster. But it's not impossible to make a wider tire with a supple casing, and there are some narrow tires that are slow. Um, So, basically, the width of the tire doesn't really tell you much about how it performs. When you get into these tires that that are more supple, do they tend to also be more fragile as a result? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that the, everything is a compromise. Of course, the 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 sturdiest tire is probably that that iron wheel that I was talking right. about before. Um, and we actually once tested some airless tires, which you know are probably a lot of people's dreams because right. you'll never get a flat. Um, the only problem was with our roll-down test that the rider who's coasting down the hill barely made it to the bottom of the hill. He almost fell over because oh, really? it was going so slow. Well, usually he goes through our speed trap at about uh, something like 12 miles per hour. So, wow. <laughs> you know, it's it's all a compromise. And um, a supple tire is going to puncture more easily. There's no question about that. And the more Kevlar layers and puncture-proof layers you put in the tire, the more resistance you'll have, and also the worse your comfort gets. Talk to and me. And in the end, it's, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, in the end, I guess it's 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 one thing that you have to think about if if you're comfortable fixing a flat, and I would hope that most bicyclists are comfortable fixing a flat. If you get a flat tire every three months and you have a wonderful ride the rest of the time, perhaps that's a trade-off worth taking. Exactly. When I rode in, in Paris, Brest Paris in 2007, I rode well-worn tires because I really wanted to go fast. And uh, obviously, yeah, the, thinner, the thinner the tread gets, the faster right. the tire gets. Right. But the weather was atrocious. I had three flats. Ugh. But I had calculated that I saved an hour out of 50 hours of ride yeah. um, by going with the thinner tires. And the flats took me about 15 minutes to fix 
all three of them. So in the end, I was still 45 minutes ahead. Definitely worth the trade-off. Definitely well, worth you it. know, it's everybody has to think about it. Somebody else might say, well, it will ruin my ride if I have a flat tire and... <laughs> You know, I, I, I'll be miserable stress. and get off my bike for for the next three months, and you know, then then you might want to choose a different tire. Yeah, yeah. You did a very interesting uh, ride that I, I read about in the most recent issue of Bicycle Quarterly, uh, riding over rumble strips <laughs> to oh, yeah. to to quantify suspension losses a little bit more. Tell me about that. That was a heck of a ride. Yeah, well, one thing is suspension losses have sort of been forgotten. In the early days when people came up with pneumatic tires after the iron wheels and then the the airless tires, which were popular in the 1870s and 1880s, and then in the 1890s, pneumatic tires came. And they weren't just popular because they were more comfortable, but the main thing was they were so much faster. And so people, when there's a book by Archibald Sharp that's called uh, something like an elementary treatise on bicycles and, and tricycles mm, and tricycles or yeah, something treatise like that. on their design and construction exactly and yeah. that was from the 18 1900s 1896 1896 well good um and he talks about these suspension losses because obviously they still remembered how much bouncing there was and so my friends and i we were thinking about how could you quantify this the army had done some studies in the 1960s where they looked at vibrating seats. I think they must have been concerned about lightweight tanks, mm. perhaps something to airdrop or something like that. And they found that a soldier sitting on a vibrating seat could absorb up to 2,000 watts mm. um, before it got so uncomfortable that basically the pain threshold was reached. Now, you think about it, 2,000 watts is about what a pro sprinter in the Tour de France might reach for two seconds at the finish of a stage. Yeah. So basically... If really that holds true, the vibration losses could stop the bike dead, even under the pro sprinter. Um, And we thought about uh, the rumble strips that we have on a lot of highways out here. If you ever have ridden into them, you notice not just that it's terribly uncomfortable, but that your bike almost stops dead. Absolutely, yep. But one thing we found is that now that we've gone to wider tires and lower pressures, the rumble strips aren't as bad as they used to be. And so we thought, well, can we quantify this? And can we look at how, first of all, we wanted to see how much can we lose in suspension losses in the worst case scenario. And these rumble strips feel sort of like the cobblestones of Paris-Roubaix. I've ridden on cobblestones in Europe. You know, the war and and things like that. So it's not totally out of this world. And so we looked at that. We rode over the rumble strips and we found that the worst case scenario was a loss of, what was it, 290 watts? Something like that. A huge Mm -hmm. amount. I mean, basically... Just to ride at um, at um, 20 miles per hour was an all-out sprint, whereas riding on the smooth road next to the rumble strips was piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> and then we looked at different equipment. How much do we lose if we have a tire pumped up to 95 psi versus 75? A supple tire versus a harder tire, a wider tire, suspension forks flexible steel forks. What else did we look at? Um, uh, handlebar, cushion handlebars. Yeah, cushion handlebars, which didn't yep. do much. Um, and uh, so check what's the most effective way of cushioning or of, of basically avoiding the suspension losses, which at the same time increases the comfort because the suspension losses are, after all, our bodies hurting. One of the, one of the things about the suspension losses is if you're you're on a tire that's that's 
really inflated quite a bit and is just bouncing like crazy, you're not get you're losing that energy. Whereas yeah. in a in an yeah. interesting scenario, the energy is returned to you to help you accelerate. Can you can you kind of describe that a little bit? It's it's easy to see in a picture. Well, um, basically, your body is is cre- is creating heat out of friction. Whereas if your tire hits a bump and the tire deforms, it pushes off the backside of that bump again. And so you get a lot of the energy back. It's sort of like a ball. If you drop a basketball, it deforms as it hits the ground, but then it pushes back off and flies back up in the air. And it doesn't come quite as high as before because some energy is lost in that deformation. But um, it's you know you don't lose that much. Whereas if you have a beanbag and you drop that on the floor, Boop. <laughs> it's yeah, it lies there. And your body is like the beanbag, and your tire is like the um, is like the basketball. So basically. Absorbing the bump in your tire is a much better scenario than absorbing it in your body because you know you you deform the tire as you hit the hit the bump if you imagine just a sort of round bump yeah and then as you go over the bump on the other side the tire springs back and pushes the bike forward right it one of the neat things about this article that I enjoyed was the fact that it it's where the suspension is and the bike that determines really how effective it's going to be. And the tire is so effective because it's so close to the source of the problem. Yeah, well, exactly. When you're pushing handlebars, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) It's, you know, cars have known this for a long time. The race cars use very lightweight wheels um, because they, um, they are not suspended. And if the wheel hits a bump, it accelerates upward. And the heavier the wheel is, the harder it is to get that that um, movement checked through the suspension shock absorbers and so on. So if you want to, for race cars, they just want to keep the tires on the ground so they have traction. Mm-hmm. For cyclists, that means that once your whole front wheel, your fork, your handlebars, everything is moving upward, the handlebar cushioning is overpowered by all that inertia that's coming up. If you're, you know, you're looking at, even if your bike only weighs 15 pounds and you're looking at five, six, seven, eight pounds that are coming up into the handlebars. Um, whereas if you look at the tire itself, the only thing that's coming up there is the contact patch of the tire, which is about as big as a dime, perhaps, maybe a little bigger. Right. And it's just a little bit of rubber, a little bit of inner tube, and that's it. So basically, there's not much movement, not much energy to kill. So from a comfort perspective, um, much easier to get rid of the vibration at its source than you know, having the whole bike move up and then trying to stop the whole bike. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One of the things I always wonder about, I mean, as I've read your articles and looked at the analysis that you've done, which is really fascinating, it it all makes such perfect sense. And, of course, you've got all the numbers and the facts to back it up. It makes me wonder if, as an industry, we'll ever come around to saying, this does make sense, and let's reflect it now on the kind of tires that we make available and, and and when do we put rake in a fork? Do we do it gradually? Do we do straight forks? This kind of thing. The, the, sometimes I think we're almost moving in the wrong direction rather than well, the right know, but direction. You have to consider that small companies like yours being the exception, but for most big companies, they want to sell things. Yeah. And so they'll do whatever they can to either go with the market trends or distinguish their product from the others. Um, and I think it's really up to the riders to demand different things. 
And it's the same thing in all industries. You know, the industry pushes one thing, and you really get somewhere when the riders say, no, that's not what we want. Right, right. And um, I think in bicycling, fortunately, a lot of cyclists care so much about their sport, even if they only ride for transportation, so maybe we shouldn't even call it sport. But um, that you have a more informed informed group of people. And so I think... Um, in the long run, we're probably going to move in the right direction. We already see that. And, you know, I, I have to say that we do sell some wide, supple tires, so there's a bit of a conflict of interest here. Although what really was happening was that um, one of the tire makers said, oh, this is wonderful information, let's make the tires. And yeah. um, <laughs> nobody was bringing them into this country. It's a Japanese company. And so we decided to import them and make them available to first our readers and then people otherwise. But basically, I think... You know, if people ask for the stuff, somebody will make it. And uh, it might be in, on, on a smaller scale. I mean, it's probably going to be a long time till you can go to your local, whatever, super value shop or something like that. <laughs> um, I don't want to use any brand names here. Yeah, and find yeah. find this stuff, uh, this stuff um, on the shelf, so to speak. Right, right. But... Um, We've already seen a huge amount of change over the last 10, 15 years when you when you look at things. Yeah, it's very exciting. I look at these ideas and I think, you know, as we move forward with our own bicycle design here, it would be neat to really concentrate on one model that brings all of these ideas together, which mm-hmm. would be going out and sourcing tires, certainly in the smaller sizes that we need for our very petite riders. Mm-hmm. But, but so well worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. anything you can do to, to make bicycling even more fun and more valuable than it already is uh, to me that's the name of the game i agree i mean it's, it's really interesting because we test a lot of bikes for the magazine which means that we ride them usually for about 200 miles so it really becomes my own bike i ride it exclusively for two weeks or something like that and um there's such big differences between you know a really excellent bike and the bike that's merely good. Yes. Um, and the enjoyment of cycling depends so much on that. It's just like, you know, the people who buy their first real running shoes after always having, going running in, in I don't know what, maybe hiking boots or right. something like that. <laughs> and it's just, I remember as a kid, you know, we had these cheap, whatever, Converse type shoes. Yeah. And suddenly I got a real pair of running shoes and I was just like, wow, this is what a shoe can feel like. And I think a bicycle is even more so because a bicycle is really unique in that it's an extension of your body, and the two really have to work well together. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you Which one... I think gets us into the next subject. For the next yeah, we, I have a lot to talk about with another podcast. Let me ask you one real quick question because you mentioned uh, going into a shop and buying a bike. How How much really good information can someone get in a five- or ten-minute test ride with a bicycle? I, you know, I look at some of the test rides you do, and they're for many, many miles. And somebody it's who's really just listening tough, to you this, know, yeah. It's, I think with a five or ten mile test ride, there are two things, especially to somebody who's not really well versed in testing bikes. There are two options: either the bike feels great because it's a new bike, and you know it's just different, and you say, "Wow, this is great," or the bike feels awful because it's a new bike and it feels different from your own. Right, right. And um, I think there's some things like handling that you can assess in a short test ride. You know, you can try, if you're comfortable riding no hands, you can try how well that works and things like that. In fact, you can even look at other people 
Like when I bought a bike for my daughter, I insisted on a test ride, which was quite a scene at the store because they said, well, we can't have a four-year-old test ride a bike. And I said, well, you know, how else are we going to know whether it handles well or not? And um, I mean, I had eyeballed the geometry and I thought, this one looks good, but we really need to try it out. It was really fun to see my daughter had never ridden a bike before. She had only used a scooter. Oh, yeah. And I um, went outside with her and in a little park, and there was a slight downhill, and I was prepared to run after her, but I realized she was riding a bike because uh, this bike was just so stable and so yeah, easy to ride. Yeah. And she later tried the neighbor's bike and fell over. Oh, how interesting. You know, so so it was really interesting. But, you know, performance and things like that, I think um, until the bike becomes part of your body, you can't really say much. And the bike isn't going to become part of your body in five or ten miles. It's almost like an artificial limb or something, you know, where it takes a long time for your muscles and everything to program or reprogram for that. Right, right. Well, Jan, this has been fascinating. I, uh, well, I love talking about this kind of stuff, and I bet everybody enjoyed hearing about it as well. So let's, uh, let's do another one of these. There's another very interesting subject called planing. And I, I won't even explain what that is. People will just have to wait for the next podcast. And uh, I'm sure they'll be in for a treat at that time. So, so well, thank, thank you, you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.